uh, quite a long story. It's also a fairly well-known story, though, isn't it? And uh, the big question is, what, what is the purpose? What is the point of this story, Genesis? Uh, it's one of the more well-known stories out of the book of Genesis and the Old Testament, maybe because uh, more space is given to the life of Joseph than to any other person in Genesis, even more time than Abraham. But it's also a, a riveting story. There's intrigue, there's scandal. Some have called it the definitive rags to riches story. A poor Hebrew boy with hopes and dreams for his future hits rock bottom and then somehow manages to go from this impossible situation and skyrockets to a position that's beyond anything he could have hoped for or imagined. No wonder there's been about eight, at least eight Hollywood movies made about Joseph's story, not to mention the famous musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, still being performed after 50 years. There's something about the story that captures people's imagination. Unfortunately, though, when a biblical story is picked up by popular culture, often the true meaning of the story then gets obscured. People end up seeing them as inspirational fables. They inspire us to do great things or to believe in ourselves or to feel a happy but nebulous hope about the future in some way. And the problem with that is then that we as Christians take those interpretations and we impose them on the actual biblical text and as a result we can actually also miss the purpose of the story. Here's, here's a couple of examples of, of, of how people have, I believe, really got the story of Joseph uh, wrong or missed the point. One person says, it was by being obedient in the face of dashed hopes that God was able to cause Joseph's greatest hopes to come true. In the same way, often it's only when we keep on in faith, persevering without evidence, that God can finally cause miracles in our lives as well. Someone else has said, when God gives us a dream, it's in his personal timeline. His plans will never fail and he will always fulfil what he said he will fulfil. Or someone else, God will give you a dream or a vision for your future if you let him. God has a unique plan for every one of us. That means there's a vision for your life and that's the dream he'll put on your heart. Now one of the the key problems with those approaches is they first and foremost seek to get us to put ourselves in the shoes of Joseph, to identify with him, to think how can we be like him. But the original audience of this story, the people of Israel, They weren't supposed to identify with Joseph. They were supposed to be identified with the other people in the story, Joseph's brothers and his father Jacob. We can actually see the main point of the Joseph story when we look at Hebrews 11. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus, of the Israelites, and gave directions concerning his bones. Makes sense, doesn't it, that sometimes the key point of a story comes right at the end 
tell the story and say, here's why I'm telling you this, this is the point of it. And the writer of Hebrews says this is the point. The passage that he refers to is in Genesis 50, which we'll get to in two weeks. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Remember that Genesis was written by Moses for the Israelites as they've been brought out of Egypt and as they were journeying towards the promised land. Uh, it is, Genesis, in a sense, is a prequel to the book of Exodus. It explains the background to all of the Exodus events. So the story of Joseph not only explains to the Israelites how they ended up in Egypt, where they would one day be slaves, but it shows us how all of the events of Joseph's life were from the hand of the Lord in accomplishing his purpose, in doing what he said to Abraham. Even earlier in Genesis, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So it's all about saying this is what the Lord promised to Abraham. Now we see the Lord actually doing it and make it happen. So an Israelite reading this wasn't supposed to ask, how can I be like Joseph? They were supposed to look at what the Lord was doing through Joseph to bring their forefathers and them, the whole nation that they'd become into Egypt, where they would be delivered by the mighty hand of the Lord in faithfulness to his promises. Now some Bible commentators have suggested that Joseph is set forward in this story as a model for how an Israelite was to be devout and godly, to be a person of faith. And uh, there's always a sense of that, that the writer of Hebrews mentions Joseph as an example to all who would live by faith. So it's true that we will see Joseph at the end of this story in a place of faith, able to give the prophetic words that he does. But we also need to see that this isn't how he started. The opening verses of chapter 37 kind of set the scene and they, they show us that this family of which Joseph was a part was quite dysfunctional. Jacob had two wives, the sisters, Leah and Rachel. He'd been tricked into marrying Leah by her father even though he really wanted to marry her sister Rachel. So he had favouritism towards Rachel and that led to rivalry between the two sisters. Invariably, the accounts of bigamy and polygamy in the Bible serve to highlight the goodness of God's original design of marriage. One man, one woman for life. The Bible never endorses polygamy. It never speaks of it positively. Whenever there's stories of polygamy in the Bible, there's always problems as a result of that. Remember that. If, if anyone uses the instance of polygamy in the Bible to say, well, how can you insist on 
marriage between one man and one woman because it's in the Bible. Remember that. The Bible records it, but it never endorses it. In fact, it highlights the problems that come from it. So Jacob has six sons and a daughter with Leah. He has two sons with Rachel. He has two sons with Leah's servant and two sons with Rachel's servant. And as we heard from the reading, there were other daughters there as well. Uh, Only uh, one, one daughter is mentioned by name. So one father, two wives, four mothers, 12 half brothers and half sisters. I reckon that's a recipe for an incredibly complicated and messy home situation. And to make things more messy, Jacob favours the two sons of Rachel, his favourite wife. And he treats Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel's sons, as if he were the firstborn of all the brothers. The coat that he gave Joseph was a sign of status within the family. Now the Hebrew doesn't, we don't know exactly what the Hebrew means. It probably doesn't mean many colours. Sorry to dash any um, ideas um, that you've had. It could mean that, but it could also mean a coat with sleeves or a coat that came down to the ankles. Whatever it looked like, it was a sign of the status that Joseph had. Not just that he was loved more by his father, but he actually had a position within the family. Uh, it's a bit like when the prodigal son returns to the father, he says, bring the best robe and put it on him. He's reinstating him into his status as a son. This coat indicated that he was in some kind of supervisory role. And we saw that initially it was over his four half-brothers, the, the, the four half-brothers who were sons of the two servant women, um, and he was involved in reporting on them to his father. So he had this position. His father had delegated authority to him. And so he was resented by his brothers. At age 17, he'd been given such a responsible and privileged role just because their father loved him more. Joseph wasn't without fault. He used his privileged position to bring a bad report about his brothers. And the word here implies it wasn't just presenting the facts. It was done intentionally to paint them in a bad light. It wasn't just a one-sided thing here. It was his brothers didn't like him, but he also didn't like his brothers Then he tells them his dreams and he knows what the interpretation of his dreams would be, that it would be obvious. He knows it would cause more strife with his brothers, but not only with his brothers, also with his father. So as one Bible scholar has put it, God's future agent and mouthpiece in Egypt could hardly make a worse impression on his first appearance. Spoiled brat, tail-bearer and braggart. So when Joseph is sent by his father to bring, uh, to find his brothers and bring back a report, we can see why his brothers would have seen this as if Jacob 
maybe had been drawn in to what Joseph was saying. Maybe he'd heard Joseph's boasting about his dreams and thought maybe that's true and so now he'd made him the supervisor not just of the four brothers but of all 11 brothers. But then verses 15 to 17 is the turning point, at least for Joseph. This mysterious man finds him wandering in the fields and tells him where to find his brothers. It might sound to us like a bit of useful trivia. Why, why can't he just say Joseph went and he found his brothers? Why record he went to Shechem? No, oh, they're not there. A man, this man found him and directed him in the right direction. It's actually a sign to us that behind these events, the Lord is at work engineering things. Who is this mysterious man? Maybe someone the Lord just had in the right place at the right time. Maybe it was the Lord himself appearing to Joseph as he had appeared to Jacob and to Abraham and to others beforehand. But this brief encounter marks the end of the favour that Joseph had in his father's household and the beginning of his long journey downwards to a prison cell in Egypt. If it wasn't for this seemingly random encounter with this man in the field, Joseph may have returned to his father and said, I went to Shechem, they weren't there. And none of the rest of history would have happened as as we heard about it. But it did. It happened because of the Lord's plan and his commitment to seeing that plan fulfilled. So chapter 37 ends with a death, at least from Jacob's perspective. I don't know if you noticed how in verse 13 he's called Israel, the new name given to him by the Lord indicating the future that was there for him and his descendants. But then in verse 34 he's called Jacob, maybe indicating that at least from his perspective, all that the Lord had promised him had been taken away. All of his hopes had been placed in Joseph. He was probably thinking, just as Abraham passed it on to Isaac, Isaac passed it on to me, Joseph will be the one that I will pass the promise on to. Now Joseph is gone, dead as far as he knows. So Joseph goes to Egypt And what happens to him in Egypt, in chapter 39, forces us to throw out any notions of a prosperity gospel. The idea that if we do the right thing, if we have enough faith, then the Lord will bless us by making things good and comfortable for us. How did Joseph become a successful man in his role as Potiphar's slave? We're told purely it's because the Lord was with him. He'd done nothing. The Lord did it. Then we do hear about something righteous that he did. He honoured his master Potiphar and he honoured God by refusing to be seduced by Potiphar's wife. But what did that do? Landed him in trouble. You know, he could have given in. He could have become her secret lover 
the matter would have been kept secret. She would have had the, the power and the ability to keep it secret. Most likely, he wouldn't have been the first secret lover she would have had. It may have opened doors for him to take hold of more power. She could have given him access to information that would have been of advantage to him. But he chose to do the right thing by God and by his master and it led to disaster and prison. In ancient Egypt, they didn't have the restorative justice system that we have today in which prison is seen as a place of rehabilitation in the hope that when you've done your sentence, you can then function as a regular member of society again. Prison in ancient times was simply a place where you waited either trial or execution. Most likely for Joseph, it was the second. He was a slave, a a foreign slave, accused of sexual assault against the wife of a high official in Egypt. So to be thrown in prison for him was just the cue for being executed. So there goes the prosperity gospel. The only message we can take from this so far is if the Lord wants you to be successful, he'll do it without your help. And when you diligently do what is the righteous thing to honour God, you may still be betrayed and dishonoured and even imprisoned. Yet even as Joseph is sent to the lowest of low places, we're told, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So Joseph, he's on this downward trajectory. There's a few ups along the way, but it's still downwards. But the Lord is with him. The Lord was with Joseph at his highest point so far and he's with him now at his lowest point. This is the lesson that the scriptures teach us over and over again. Circumstances are not an indication of the Lord's presence or absence. When he says, I will be with you, I will not forsake you, that means that wherever his people are, he is there with them. So where is the Lord at this moment in this biblical story? Well, he's there in the pit of prison alongside Joseph. He's in that place that seemingly, humanly speaking, is a dead end. A man is betrayed by his own family. He's now a disgraced foreign slave rotting in an Egyptian prison awaiting execution but the Lord was with Joseph. Now Joseph is in a place that foreshadows where he and his brother's descendants will be in 400 years down the track. They would become the great nation as promised, they would grow and prosper within Egypt only to have their situation turn upside down through no doing of their own and demoted to a place of slavery, to a place of hopelessness, to a place that was a dead end. Yet the Lord would be with them. He would bring them out of their prison, he would make them his precious children and he would give them a status among the nations as his firstborn son, a royal people. 
This is the pattern that the Lord uses when he acts in salvation. It's always through death and resurrection. See what Jesus said. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, God has built into creation itself the image of death and resurrection. And it's all around us all the time. Whenever a seed falls to the ground and is buried, dies, that bears fruit in resurrection, in the new tree or plant that springs out of it. And see how he says this, he uses this image both in reference to his own death, he himself will be the seed which all seeds in creation point to, who will die and be buried. But by his death, he'll bring about resurrection for all who believe. But then he also says it in reference to anyone who would know this new life that he gives. We too must die and be buried and have the old life done away with through being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So Joseph is a seed a seed that's fallen to the ground and died, lost in the obscurity of an Egyptian prison, doomed to be killed, doomed to be forgotten forever, with no record of him ever having lived. No one wrote biographies of Hebrew slaves in the ancient world. But because the Lord is with him there in the pit of the prison, there will be a resurrection. And this resurrection, as we'll see, will be to accomplish the saving not just of his family, but of many, many people across the known world. To continue the story, a brief summary of chapter 40. Two of Pharaoh's officials also end up in prison. And the theme of dreams continues. Each of them have dreams. Joseph is able to interpret their dreams, predicting that one, the baker, would be executed and that the other, the cupbearer, would be restored. His interpretations came true. And Joseph hoped that the cupbearer, a man who was one of the closest to Pharaoh, he was the one who brought the wine to Pharaoh but tasted it first in case it was poisoned. So he was one of the most trusted men of the Pharaoh's um, officials. He's hoping that he'll remember him and get him released from prison. However, the ungrateful cupbearer forgets and Joseph spends another two years in prison. So we pick it up again in chapter 41 and let me read. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile and behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows and Pharaoh awoke. 
And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of corn, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offences today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered and thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, the seven good ears are seven years, the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish throughout the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So it's been a 13-year journey for Joseph, sold into slavery at 17, second in command over all Egypt at age 30, taken to the very lowest place and then to the very highest place. Through all the trials and sufferings he'd faced, the Lord had made him the right man for the job. Did you notice his boldness? He was brought to Pharaoh to give an interpretation of the dreams, but he's so sure of God's intentions to bring about the interpretation that without waiting he jumps straight into being an advisor, telling Pharaoh what he should do to overcome the coming famine. This is a boldness that could only have come from the faith that the Lord had given him, faith that had been tried and tested and purified in the fires of his suffering. It was a faith that said, I will trust the Lord no matter what happens. Even if by trusting him my life is forfeited, to to presume to be able to advise Pharaoh could mean certain death. I think by faith he senses that he's in Egypt standing before Pharaoh for such a time as this. What the actual reason is, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that another, in another seven years, his brothers 
will turn up in Egypt. But he does know that there's a reason, because Pharaoh does for him more than he could have hoped or imagined. All he was wanting was to get out of prison. Now he sits in the second most powerful position in Egypt, with all of its resources under his command. So what to do with this power? At this stage, all he knows is just be faithful to what I've been called to by God through Pharaoh. We know that the Lord's preparing him to save both his family and the whole region through the Lord and that through this the Lord will ensure the continuity, the continuation of the promise to Abraham. But the Lord has also prepared him for something else, something deeply personal. Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh, which means making to forget. An odd name to give a son, except for what it symbolises. He said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. A better translation of that is my hardship in my father's house. In other words, all of the suffering he faced at the hands of his own family members and the 13 years of suffering that came as a result of the actions Clearly he hasn't lost the memory of it, otherwise he wouldn't be able to mention it. This is a different kind of forgetting. It's a forgetting that mirrors God's forgetting. When he says to us, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, I will not remember your sins. This is the forgetting of forgiveness, the letting go of the past, because He's been able to entrust himself to the God who judges justly. He's been able to see that God is the faithful judge of the whole earth. He will always see that justice is done. And Joseph hasn't even just been the recipient of justice. The Lord's given him so much more. For Joseph, justice would have been for him to return to his family, for his brothers to admit their wrong and to make up for what they'd done. But the Lord had given him abundantly more than justice. He showered him with grace. And it's this generous grace that prepares Joseph for what is to come. What will be needed is not just the saving of his family from the coming famine, but also a reconciliation between him and his brothers. This dysfunctional, divided family who were heirs of the promise given to Abraham needs to be both reunited and reconciled, brought together not just in location but in heart. Now while Joseph can teach us about the nature of forgiveness and reconciliation, and we'll certainly see that in the coming weeks, he is primarily a picture for us of Jesus. Not in his own need for spiritual reformation, but in how Through death and resurrection, he stands as the saviour of God's people. Joseph didn't literally die, but he experienced a death and resurrection. It began with being thrown into a hole in the ground. Symbolically, that was the moment he died. The moment he was cut off from his family. All of his privileges were taken away. And it was downwards from there, sold as a slave and then thrown into prison, as good as dead, 
and certainly considered dead by Jacob. We could say he descended into hell. Then from the lowest point he could go, he was taken miraculously by the hand of the Lord to the highest point. This is a resurrection not just in a physical sense from slavery and prison to authority and a palace. It's a resurrection that's then shared in by others. Because Joseph lives, others too will live. Joseph was to become the gatekeeper of all of the wealth and abundance of Egypt. All people must come to him if they are to benefit from God's provision. In the same way, Jesus, through his death and resurrection at the hands of the Father, has opened for us the riches of all his goodness and grace. The one who became weak and poor in solidarity with us now invites us into his place of absolute authority to come to him to share in his abundance. Let's pray. Father, we see in the life of Joseph not just the story of so many people in this world uh, but also our own story, the story of death and resurrection but primarily we see in it the story of your son, the one who descended to the depths so that he might take hold of us and bring us to the heights of your love, your family, uh, your right hand. Fathers, we continue to explore this story of Joseph over the the coming weeks. We ask that we might uh, see your hand behind all that is taking place uh, in our lives, in this world, just as uh, your hand was behind all that took place in Joseph's life. Help us to see, Father, that just as you brought your people out of uh, famine and poverty and death and gave them life, so too uh, you do that for us in Jesus. And we ask, Father, that you might enable us to put our trust in him. Amen. Let's stand and sing the uh, last few verses of this song that we sang earlier. It's about prayer. uh, And these last few verses really reflect how through Jesus, who prays for us, intercedes for us, we, we have been brought into the Father's house, just as Joseph's brothers were brought into Egypt and was saved. So let's sing.